Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. The playwright Dominique Mariso, a MacArthur genius, a Kennedy Prize winner, and a Tony nominee, devotes much of her work to her first love, the city of Detroit. She describes her hometown as the blackest city in America, where she saw people who looked like her in every type of career and leadership role. She says, we weren't minorities and we weren't minor. As a child and teenager, she loved acting in plays and writing poetry. She loved her neighborhood and her friends and the local art scene where she met other writers she admired. It was only when she left the city that she saw a different perspective on Detroit. The way others saw it, the way journalists wrote about it, it all felt so incomplete. Dominique began to write about her city in its full complexity and humanity, and in 2018 she published The Detroit Project a collection of plays that depicts the city in three settings. A jazz club in the 1940s, an after-hours bar in the 1960s, and an auto plant in 2008. In each of these, Detroit itself is a character, persevering, scrappy, and lovable. Detroit is also a prominent character in Dominique's current Broadway show, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. Detroit conjures up so many associations for us, American cars like Ford and Cadillac, styles of music like jazz and Motown, artists like Smokey Robinson and Diana Ross, and historical events like the riots of 67 and the bailout of 2008. In Dominique's work, it's all worth exploring and all worthy of compassion. So what does a full portrait of Detroit actually look like? That's today's episode. But first, something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. Beyoncé's new album in conjunction with The Lion King, entitled The Lion King, The Gift, is a celebration of the Nigerian music industry. Six musicians who are big throughout Africa but not as well known abroad are featured on numerous tracks and have gained visibility alongside the popularity of the new film. On the original film soundtrack, Elton John and Hans Zimmer worked with several African performers who lent their vocals to The Circle of Life and other songs. In this incarnation, however, the visibility is on another level, giving artists whose success is specific to one region of the world a point of entry into the international market. And now here's my interview with Dominique Mariso. Dominique, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, recently, I reread several of your plays, and I have to say, I really have a perpetual lump in my throat when I take in your work because uh, you can just see and feel the love on every page or in every scene. Um, what I really love about your stories are that the characters want to protect the ones they love, but they struggle when those individuals don't always want to be protected. And mm -hmm. I just think that anybody who has that experience of wanting to protect somebody out of reach can, can find an access point in your work. So I wanted to start with that and just commend you on a really astounding body of work. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so to get into some of your work more specifically, a lot of your plays come from personal connection, whether to your hometown of Detroit or to a family member's life or their career. Um, but I know there's also a fair amount of research that you put in. I'm curious, with each project, how do you balance 
research and emotion? What is the meeting place? Hmm. I, I, it depends um, project to project, I think. Uh, depends on what I know about the subject that I'm writing about, how organic it is to me. It is a little bit foreign to me. For instance, my play Skeleton Crew, I know Detroit like the back of my hand, but I don't know the auto industry. Mm. So I had to do a lot of, uh, I never worked in it. You know, every I have tons of family members that worked all throughout every part of it, um, on blue collar, white collar side, everywhere. And I talked to all of those family members that I could. But I also, you know, I read books about the closings of plants and just like the the inner workings of that. If I know nothing about the world, I got no starting point. I got to do some reading first. I got to do some documentary, some, you know, for Skeleton Crew, I went to museums in Detroit. I went to visit a factory, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I'll start writing creatively. I'll start telling, I'll figure out the story I want to tell. I'll start telling my story. And then there might be things that I don't know specifically. Like I had Skeleton Crew written completely and then had to go back talking to people and fill in blanks or fix things that were incorrect, you know, mm-hmm. but I'd rather do that than not know the story I'm trying to tell, than get stuck on research and not tell the story. And mm-hmm. so I believe in being a slave to the truth and not the facts. I don't think those are the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It actually kind of reminds me, I remember uh, Tony Kushner wrote the screenplay to the movie Lincoln and he had this line that said, on the way to telling the truth of what happened, we get to make up what happens. Something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's people don't like it. Historians hate that. But I'm like, well, well then historians, stop looking to artists to be, to be historians. <laughs> <laughs> We're not true. We didn't do your job. We're doing our job. Yeah. When I was reading Skeleton Crew, I mean, I moved by the emotion of it. But there are so many specific references to types of line items on the factory floor and I was like either Dominique really knows her stuff or she did a ton of research like I was like does she know that like has she worked there literally I'll go to friends and you know I'll get online I'm like so somebody worked on the factory please call me this is having human beings who lived it who are willing to share their truths with me like that helps Yeah, yeah. So your trio of plays set in Detroit and titled The Detroit Project uh, is dedicated to the city itself. On the dedication page, you write, Detroit is my family, my best friends, my husband, my first love, my creative genesis, my heart. This is for your imperfection, your truth, and your ongoing survival through the decades. Tell me what is formative about growing up in Detroit ranging from the obvious parts to the parts that are more hidden? Well, I don't know what's obvious to people. I I don't know what's obvious. I guess Motown. I don't know what's obvious to people, but for me, what may or may not be obvious about growing up in Detroit was like, it was the blackest city in the country when I was growing up. The population and the control of the city was by, it was majority run by the black residents of the city. And that's unique. Because yeah. what that means is I grew up in a city where I was not a minority and I was not minor. Like yeah. there was no minor thinking. I grew up in a city where the best black history program ever was taught by our Chinese American teachers, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. and like, like it 
me. He gave us like the best black history education uh, I could ever imagine getting. You know, I went to a magnet school. It wasn't my neighborhood school, but I lived in a neighborhood where all of my friends went to the neighborhood school. So it was, it was, I got to see the, the juxtaposition of like black affluence and black poverty. Right, right. So, so not so like not self conscious about blackness in a way. Not at all, and and people probably hear that, and I don't know what triggers it does for them, like what kind of like associations they're making or projections they're putting onto that. But what that means for me was that I had an I I didn't have um, a sense of question mark about who I am, what I can be in the world. Mm -hmm. I saw reflections of me in every kind of position of leadership possible in my city. So I didn't question. And I think that that, I can only imagine that that, I, I think I felt like, well, maybe white people feel in the majority of the country, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like completely entitled to where I am. I didn't feel like I somehow had to be precious about living where I am, being where I'm from. I, I felt domain over where I live, yeah, you know, yeah. like, and, um, and I only did it. I only learned the opposite when I went to college 40 minutes away from my city and was like, wait, what, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I always say like the, the, the white people that live in Detroit, my white friends in Detroit were poor. Mm-hmm. I just, I had an association with whiteness being in poverty. <laughs> And mm-hmm. the, so it would be kind of like, oh, my poor white friends are over in the poor part of town where the like like Eminem, you know, like where you're living in like yeah. the, you know, <laughs> you're that's a rough you're have you have it rough as white people. <laughs> that's my mindset. Yeah. Because it, so it's like to to get to see like oh wait hold up, the rest of the country is on some other stuff, um, and and so going elsewhere in the world we can we feel us and then having learning how the rest of the world saw Detroit versus how we experienced it was really, that was one of the most traumatic things for me and my husband at Michigan. Yeah. Going to the University of Michigan was like, wait, what do y'all think we are? You know, I, I realized that my city had been weaponized to keep people from humanizing us. I decided to do something different. I wanted to humanize, use humanity as a weapon instead of our inhumanity. Yeah. Wow. You have a a great quote in an interview that you did where you said you didn't want the only people who were writing about Detroit to be journalists who weren't necessarily doing it from a place of love. And when you would read articles about something said in Detroit, let's say the bailout of the auto industry, for example, what did you feel was missing from those depictions? I guess I just I, I felt like where's the where's the person like where's the story about when I was 16 and flipped my car very much like the character in my story uh, and skeleton crew did when when I drove a car and my best friend was in the side and we flipped it on the side of the road and uh, uh, somebody came and saved our lives pulled us out of the car and saved our lives on the side of the road and nothing but motorists from all over were stopping and helping us you mm-hmm. know like where where where's the stories about like the history and the activism and the ways in which the mayor of our city created uh, the mayor Coleman Young of our city who was kind of goes down of journalists and other folks I think that didn't weren't living in the city under his tenure that 
I think he goes down as like some rabbit hole of corruption, whereas that's not how, that was not our experience for him. This man created the black middle class in our city. Like, that was a huge deal, you know? Yeah, And yeah. so I just, I felt like there's always the missing part of the story to me is who we are as human beings. Like, I feel like there's always the missing link of humanity, and that's the thing that I, I always feel is missing, has, has always been missing about how I experience us in journalism. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like... um you know, like you mentioned in one of the items in your dedication, the the imperfection as one of the many things about Detroit. Um, it sounds like, uh, despite all like the normal human uh, areas of uh, pros and cons and um, ups and downs of any city life, it sounds like you had a a really like prosperous and and happy upbringing, childhood, adolescence. Is that right? I really did. I really did. But here's the thing. Yes. I absolutely did. I mean, I I love where I live. I love living, being living in Detroit, being from Detroit. And here's the thing: it's kind of like family. Detroit is like a big family. I think because in part we were raised, the city was raised as a family. We knew Detroit was in a bubble for Michigan, and that outside of Detroit, we were Detroiters were not necessarily welcome anywhere else in Michigan. Hmm. So in many ways, we're a, we're a unit. Detroiters meant something. So, I mean, if you went to Birmingham, if you went to Dearborn, you were going to experience aggressive racism. Hmm. And so they didn't want our money, or they were going to put a curfew up at their malls to keep our, our young people from coming there. You know, yeah. they, would put, uh, they would start putting up dress codes at a mall that felt specifically racially targeted to, young, to our young people. You know, they didn't want us. So we knew that we were... That that connected us. It was like, well, then this is one big family. We're going to keep each other safe, and we're going to make each other thrive. And and for me personally, I mean, I literally have like 300 family members in Detroit. Yeah. So if you are talking about Detroit, you are literally talking about my family. <laughs> 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 and so it doesn't mean that your family doesn't get on your nerves, do things that make you say, I'm so done with you guys. <laughs> you <laughs> sure. Know? I'm so over you. you know? yeah. Every teenager was like, I'm getting out of Detroit. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And now many of them have come back and built in the city and are very big tastemakers in the city. But, you know, so I think it's that relationship. Yes, there's imperfections. There are, there's, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of places I would like to see the city grow. There's mm-hmm. a lot of places I'd like to see the ideology and the mentality of the city grow. But it's not going to happen by erasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read that when you were at Michigan, University of Michigan, you pursued acting before getting into playwriting. And that mm-hmm. part of your impulse was to create stories about Black people that you weren't seeing in your syllabus. So Absolutely. you merged that ambition with the kind of writing you were already doing, which was poetry. Uh, I think it's a That's really right. it's a really interesting entry point. So it's like poetry plus acting leads to playwriting. Uh, and yeah. what what I'm interested in about that combination, that trio, is that acting and poetry were passions you already had. And playwriting mm-hmm. was a sense of mission or purpose to fill a void in the arts. How do those two impulses, passion and mission, continue to inform one another 
Oh, they're inextricably linked for me because mission is very a big part of what I'm doing and how I'm writing. I know with my play pipeline, I have a mission to create a dialogue around the school to prison pipeline, to use art to institute dialogue around how we're going to shift this system of mass incarceration for young people. Mm -hmm. That is a mission. So when I'm creating the work, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to preach in the work or anything. I'm, I'm trying to use the work to strike a chord. I'm trying to use the work to ask a social question that I don't have the answer to, but I am urgently desperate trying to figure it out. And I'm engaging society to come on, let's figure this out together. You know, mm -hmm. I have a mission or I'm, I'm interested in disrupting what we think we know. You know, well, our perceptions about people. I'm, I'm really interested in disrupting it and asking some questions. I want to mess us all up <laughs> so we can build each other back together again. And so there's no, there is no purpose to my art without mission. Yeah. And then how does the, the passion blend in? Are these, is it, does it start with like, this is a story I haven't seen yet? Does it, does it start with a person you know per personally? What, what is the passion part of it? It depends, you know, um, with Pipeline, it was an incident that happened to my, to my best friend's nephew that was so similar to what happened to the character in the play mm -hmm. that, that it bothered her, so it bothered me. Yeah. And then, um, and then there was all these other things around it. And, and I was also reading Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and all yeah. that was bothering me. So it was a combination of things that were like, hold on, how do I merge all of these different things as war? of education that's happening inside of me. And I'm a former teacher. And my mother was is a former educator for 40 years. So for me, I just know that world. That one I didn't have to do research for. I know that world yeah. super well. Yeah. Um, like like the, you know, the dynamic of teacher and student? Yes, I absolutely the dynamic of teacher and student. I'm not a mother, but I know, but I have mothered so many young people. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, in, in a way that you didn't, you, you don't own the, you know, you don't own the DNA here and you just, you don't even own the journey. You're just becoming a really big conduit on the journey, mm. you know? Um, and, and so, but it's a very, but you have the moment, you have the moment while they're in your hands to be the, impacting one, uh, the one that turns the course, the one that refills the ship in a different direction. So, but for 30, you know, yeah. which is a lot, or sometimes 40 in some of the worst situations I've seen. And so um, that to me is the, the yeah. So the, so the passion for me is in what, it, what ignites it is always something very emotional for me. I am emotionally disturbed when I see a young girl in a class flipped out of her desk by a security guard mm -hmm. that has no idea who she is mm -hmm. and what she's going through and sees her only as a criminal. I, ha I feel very passionate and emotional about that experience. I care deeply about people of all backgrounds. I care deeply about our world, and I, I care about my corner of the world and where I come from and how my, um, inf my insight, my information, my expertise on what I, what I know, what I come from, it, it can help illuminate other corners of the world. Mm.
Did you see teaching as a kind of artistic expression? Yes. I think the best kind of teaching is creative teaching, like finding a new way to get your students engaged in the thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure yes. it came pretty easily as an option because, as you mentioned, your your mom was an educator and it was a path that you probably were familiar with. When, when you got into it in New York City, as you were also developing as an artist, was was part of the mindset, well, this is also a stable profession that I know while I'm getting my footing artistically? Yes, absolutely. I was like, oh, this is a no-brainer. I can do this. <laughs> and it was like the hardest work I've ever had. <laughs> so when did you um, say to yourself, yeah. I can be an artist? I can fully be an artist? I'm, I'm fortunate that I had a husband who was also working full-time in the music industry, but he was also doing the part of the music industry that is, he was doing marketing, even though he's an artist. And so he allowed me to quit my job so that I could focus more on my writing. Mm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but my career as a writer has really ascended. And it started when my husband told me, who was then just my boyfriend, mm-hmm. told me I could quit my job. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're able to take that success and then be generous in return. Mm-hmm. So this past season, you've had your first Broadway show, which led to your first Tony nomination uh, for Ain't Too Proud. Does having this new Broadway experience and um, commercial and critical uh, success does this feel game-changing for you? Was it something that you had in your mind as you were coming up? Like, does this, I think for some people, for some artists, like the Broadway production, the Tony nomination, it feels like arriving. Does yeah. it feel that for you? Or are there other markers? I'm going to give the unpopular answer. Go for it. <laughs> There are some markers that make it feel like a rising that are mostly external, have nothing to do with me. It is mostly how the industry perceives this stuff. They're obsessed with that kind of stuff. So I can feel their eyes getting bigger (laughs) on some level. In other levels, it would be disappointing to see how much it does not change for me. But that's another, <laughs> that's another, that's another podcast. But I think that it would, it would be disappointing to, and I bet you, but it, but it's happened. I know plenty of people who won Emmys, Tonys, <laughs> winners, not just nominated, um, won Oscars, and the trajectory did not shift. So I'm not, I am cautiously optimistic, but I don't place all of my eggs in that for any kind of validation. I think it was great to have that exposure. I am super happy to have a show on Broadway that not only when Detroiters come, but when everybody comes and feels like they got, like it, the people that know this group feel like, yes, that's what I know. Yeah. And, or, oh, I didn't know, and I'm, but that feels right, you know? And then they feel good about that a story represents their truth because yeah. the temptations that belong to the world, but they especially belong to Detroit. And so when Detroit comes and feels seen, I feel really good. Yeah. Um, and that I have this story about my hometown on a stage, on this very, very visible stage where they can all come and see themselves and feel vindicated. That feels great. 
I love the, just the visibility of the storytelling, like to have so many people from all over the you know, country and world come see or be able to have access to coming to see my work. That's a big deal. Yeah. That said, you know, I mean, um, the commercial world is not, I don't have as much autonomy over the commercial, my, the work in the commercial space as I do over my work in non-commercial spaces. And I like my autonomy of a, as an artist. Yeah. Partly why I asked about the, the Broadway thing and the Tony nomination um, is because I was thinking about how your play Skeleton Crew was one of the most produced plays in America over the past few years. And perhaps that's a more true signifier of success as an, for an American playwright. I mean, it's a, that's a great, I love that that play is so produced. The, to know that this work is living on in so many spaces and that people want to hear this story being told um, in small cities, you know, and, or big cities with a lot of theaters and mine is one of the voices there. I mean, that's really exciting to me because I care about what the work is really trying to do. I care about who the work is giving visibility to, who it's going to give visibility in front of, you know, who it's speaking to, yeah. how many people get to experience their some version of their own truth and humanity, even if they don't look like the people on that stage, that they feel like the people on that stage. And that, that means something to me. So it is not the pinnacle to me, but I see it for what it is. I respect what it is in its own right. It is just not... Um, necessarily my benchmark for success. Well, I'd love to get into Skeleton Crew a little um, as a way to talk about how your plays come off the page and into the actual theater and how they uh, practically work in the living theater. And part of why I want to get into Skeleton Crew is it has one of my favorite stage directions of maybe any play I've ever read. And uh, people don't really read plays that much, but I really love reading plays because the stage directions are like this little window that you don't get if you go to a play because you're never sure what was the director's idea. Yeah. And uh, to start, the Skeleton Crew is about uh, workers in a stamping plant in the auto industry in Detroit and a central area of conflict is how four different workers – um, deal with the threat of the plant closing. Um, so in this one uh, moment of stage direction, we're in the break room at the plant and the foreman, whose name is Reggie, is looking around and thinking about some of the great people he's worked with over the years, uh, one of whom is named Faye. And the stage direction is this. Suddenly, Faye's spirit fills the break room and Reggie can feel it as if her name is being echoed across the lockers and the bulletin board and the floors. She becomes embedded into the soul of the plant. Reggie inhales and exhales as Faye's spirit envelops him. So when I read that, I had to pause and be like, wait, I'm not reading a novel. I'm reading a play. <laughs> because I thought, oh my God, this is Dominique's poet voice mm -hmm. coming out. And then I was like, how does a director read that stage direction and know what to do physically? And do you talk to directors about stage directions that have a poetic spirit? Well, you know, it's interesting because it used to be, I used to want that to actually be practical. 
<laughs> I, I, I used to say, I want to see your name on the floor and on the wall. Ah. You know, and then um, I, then I decided, and in the first production that we did in New York, you know, Ruben Santiago Hudson was my director, and we tried it. We tried it, and I, and we both hated it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm, I don't think that's it. Two on the I nose. Think, well, I think it's. I think we mean it as a metaphor. <laughs> I was like, well, I think I was trying to physicalize a metaphor, and I think it it works better as a metaphor. Uh, and so I thought, you know, that's the way that he did it. I thought he interpreted the metaphor of it um, after trying to do it physically, and I thought, well, what if I just let people hear the metaphor? or read the metaphor and let the director figure out what that looks like physically as opposed to try to be prescriptive about that physical. And so I, I, I think it's a director's job to interpret poetry from not only the character's mouth, but also in the direction. If the actor inhales and exhales, that we all know what he, what, that that actor does it with purpose, yeah. that they know what they're feeling. But there's also ways of like touching parts of the, of the plant or the set, whatever great set you have. There's also ways of like lighting it, you know? Like I just feel like, ooh, go. I don't know what you're going to do, but I can't wait to see what your imagination comes up with. I love our imagination. In a play like Skeleton Crew, these characters are. I think so lovable and so um, just like awesome to spend time with, even though they're dealing with like truly difficult existential kinds of conflicts. And particularly the way it talks about the metaphors of the auto industry and cars and representing movement and travel and pathways. And the irony, of course, being that they are physically stuck in a Mm -hmm. plant that's potentially closing. Uh, so you have to have this, this like truly palpable conflict, uh, portrayed by characters who are otherwise like wonderful to be around. What do you Mm -hmm. look for in casting? How do people embody all that? Hmm, That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, it's interesting because I'm really, I'm really involved in casting of my work and, with Skeleton Crew in particular, I think that I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm I, let me correct that. I'm really involved in the casting of the original productions of my work because that's where I feel like we have to get it the most right because mm-hmm. it's the defining part of the work. And that that becomes complicated because I think a lot of actors are talented and I'm not always going for the most talented. I'm going for the most accurate mm-hmm. because it's important to me to have the people who we are telling the story about be authenticated. And and so if Detroiters come to see Skeleton Crew in the original production of Skeleton Crew, they really need to see and hear and feel Detroit. That means that uh, the character who might be tougher or the actor who might be like a little more edgy is not necessarily Des. The actor who's got some edge and some heart and humanity and has a little bit of country uh-huh. and northernness in him. That's the guy I'm I'm talking about huh. because that person is the guy in Detroit, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and when, you know, so I, I, there's, there's compassion, but there's also regionalism that means a lot to me in casting my work, you know, because we, the person in people that don't know, 
specifically who who we're writing about. Like, and I don't know who that is. You know, if you're an East Coast director and artist, you may not know what the Midwest sounds like. You, I, being from Detroit and New York, people always thought I was from the South. You know, hmm. and I'm and I'm like, that's only because you're from New York. Nobody else. <laughs> I think that 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 means something. And so I don't know. I look for I look for heart um, and vulnerability. I think that that's strangely not the easiest thing to find in, in actors. Mm. I think we are so, and and particularly, I want to say, I think black actors have had uh, actors in general take a flogging, and it's not like any other profession where. It, you know, it, it's like the beating of your ideas or beating of your, you know, somebody didn't like your, your presentation, you know, like you are your presentation. Yeah. So yeah. it's personal. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. So then when you add layers of racism and sexism into the game in other fields and you put it in acting, it's, it's just more, it feels more, the most aggressive, frankly, because it is literally your body that we are responding to. Mm-hmm. Your voice, your what is natural about your speech, your head, the way you look and sound and feel, we are naturally responding to that. So, so I think that that makes a lot of artists unable to be, will feel free to be these people that I'm writing. I'm I'm writing the opposite of what you've been trained to be. Yeah, yeah, and I think that comes across in the other plays in the Detroit Project, um, which have are all, except for one, all black casts and um, illuminate these different eras of American history. Uh, So Paradise Blue is set in 1949 and portrays the inner workings of a jazz club. And Detroit 67 is set, of course, in 1967 uh, when police raided an after-hours nightclub and set off several days of violence between police and black residents. And coming back to them again and and rereading both of these plays, I I noticed an interesting link between the two in that both plays portray African-American characters who are entrepreneurial in creating a vibrant Detroit social scene. So in one case, a jazz club, and in the other, a bar with dance music. So both are businesses that promote nightlife and music and make the city thrive, And in both plays, there are outside forces, either Detroit's government or police force, that want to squash those entrepreneurial attempts. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder, now thinking about those two plays with that common idea, how you wanted to portray the systems of business making in Detroit in two points in its history. Oh, that's a great question. I think that, I mean, both of those plays and that, particularly those conversations in those plays are probably the most contemporized conversations of Detroit right now. Mm. It's about who has the power to build and rebuild and who doesn't. Who's going to get built over, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you have a plan to build. That's what's happening so many places, and that's what happens to small internal communities within Detroit that are trying to create opportunity and job. We'll say when there's a failure of that to, to deliver upon itself, we'll blame the 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 we'll blame the entrepreneur and not the people giving out the um the the business loan. 
well, you know, we'll say, well, that entrepreneur failed. And we'll go, well, you know, well, they couldn't get a business loan. Can we talk about that? Yeah. You know? And we'll say, well, these people are all relegated to the ghetto. I mean, they're all look, they're living these ghetto, you know, lives. And we'll go, can we talk about how they've been relegated there? Can we talk about redlining? Or are we just going to leave that out of the whole conversation? Mm. And so to me, you can't talk about business and the thriving of these particular communities in Detroit without talking about urban renewal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think so much about accusations of Detroit uh, as being a city in ruin or something um, yeah. and how incongruous it is to residents who want to start businesses. And I right. think when I, you know, and all these plays in the Detroit project um, in reading them each the first time, I'm just moved by the story. And then in reading them the second time, I was like, oh, these are all about business and how this is working in Detroit. And I think that each of these plays, uh, especially the first two, are elevating a conversation about why there's a fear of black business owners. Mm-hmm. And because you, you meet the business owners, like the people who want to be the business owners, and they're like striving and purposeful. And then when you look at it from that perspective, you're like, why would that possibly get <laughs> get squashed? Yeah. yeah. Were you writing toward that theme deliberately or was that just an outgrowth of how the narrative took shape? That wasn't part of my consciousness in Detroit 67. It was, however, my part of my consciousness in Paradise Blue because Paradise Blue is about urban renewal. Yeah, yeah. I went into that story knowing that this community is going to get uprooted by plans of Kobo, Mayor Kobo, to get rid of what he would, what he went on record as calling the blight in the city. That yeah. he ran a he ran a very Trumpish, you know, hate mongering campaign. Um, about about xenophobia, <laughs> but it was about black the black residents of the city, mm-hmm. and it was very much about fear of the other. It was very much about like they're gonna these black residents they're moving in, they're moving up, they're coming up from the south, they're right. taking your jobs, they're moving into your neighborhoods, and watch out, you know. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, the novelist Jonathan Lethem uh, once saying that he wrote most clearly about Brooklyn after he left it. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering if you feel similarly about Detroit. I do. I remember that quote, and I feel that way too. I think, you know, um, I have a mentor, Brina Clark, who's a novelist. Her, when she ta- I, ta- I took a class of hers once, and she told us that, you know, she likes to tell, she, she explained why she likes to tell stories from the third person. Mm-hmm. And I used to like first person perspective. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why does she like third so much, you know? And she just showed us in juxtaposition of like where you can sit in the room to get the story. And if you're the first person, if it's the first person, you can only see where your eyes are pointing. Yeah. But if it's third person, you can be in the corner of yeah. the room yeah. and have the widest view. And I thought, ah. Oh, that's really cool. I still like first person for some people, but I also now really like third person um, because I'm like, wow, it's the I like the I like the wide range, you know, of the room, and um, and so to me, that's also what I'm trying to do in my story, you know, yeah. like see the wide range and yeah. show it to others. Yeah, 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 that's cool. So you've been living in LA recently. 
And mm-hmm. so you've had these different kinds of like fertile territories on different coasts. And now you, you've you been doing some work with uh, the series Shameless on Showtime. And um, I'm wondering if you have any plans to bring Detroit stories to the the screen. I do. I do. I can't talk about them yet, but I'm working on um, doing that now. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm working. I am working on developing some of my television, uh, some of my plays into television series. So, you know, we never know what happens out here, but I hope it happens because it's like I, I got stories for days. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. have several Detroit stories that I'm actually trying to tell um, in film and TV. So I'm excited about those things. Well, you know, I was thinking like in terms of telling stories that, um, that tap into a social justice theme. I thought it mm-hmm. was so heartening to me that that um, on Netflix, when they see us, uh, has been the most watched of any, I believe, any Netflix show or series since they started. Oh, wow. Um, oh, well, that's great. I didn't know that. And, that is um, wonderful. It's really wonderful. And it's, I mean... It's it's a painful series and it's a beautiful series, uh, but mm-hmm. I think just hearing that news, I thought it was so encouraging that mm-hmm. that there's really an appetite for this. It encourages me because that's the kind of stuff, you know. I mean, that's the kind of work I also like to contribute, you know, yeah. and to, to to know that is that Ava created this space for it to be. Um, is for audiences and networks alike to see how important but also hungry people are for this kind of entry point into storytelling. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, How do you measure success? It changes for me, and it varies on what the thing is. Like, how do I measure success of a play? Uh, by the way, the people that I wrote it for respond to it. I, I will say that I measure Ain't Too Proud, for instance, the show on Broadway. I'm, I measure I measure my personal success uh, by something very different. We all measure the show's success by how it's doing critically, financially. Uh, you know, I, I measure that by how long it can possibly stay on Broadway. Yeah. So like, if it is successful, it will last. Some of, some of what's going to make it last is critical and financial success, but mostly is marketing <laughs> yeah. and word of mouth. Yeah. Um, so I think the same thing. I measure the success, like, I measure the success of my play Pipeline by the, um, that one I measure so differently because it, I measure by was I able to do what it was intended to do, and I absolutely was. I got a whole different kind of audience to come together to see the play, I'm, and, and I got the people that the play is about into the theater, and that that's a hard thing to do. And I feel that way about all of them. You know, Paradise Blue is the last of my Detroit cycle to get done in Detroit. It's happening in October. Um, so far, I feel like my Detroit cycle has been successful in my hometown. Um, so that makes me feel like I measure success by the, uh, whether or not what I intended to do, whether the work met its intention. Yeah. And with a MacArthur grant, isn't that a jury of your peers? Yes. Yes. 
that's a, yeah. So I feel successful with the MacArthur because my 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 squad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, a squad of like thirty plus, you know, said we know what it takes to do this, and we're saying that she's doing it. Mm. That that feels damn good. I think the measurement is when the people that know feel that it is speaks to the truth, then I feel like I'm successful. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as a last question, right now is the Detroit Art Week, and next week is the Detroit Festival of Books. I was checking out both of those sites uh, uh, online. Who are um, some great Detroit artists and writers that more people should know about? That's great. Pearl Clegg, hands down. Um, so they should check her work out. Um, but she now lives in Atlanta. She's an expatriate. Uh, <laughs> the local Detroiters, um, Jessica Caremore is like a, I mean, almost, it's like almost kind of ridiculous to shout her out because maybe to the rest of the world, but to Detroit, she's already a legend. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you're going to pick our like biggest legend, you know? Um, <laughs> But she's a she's a local legend um, who is who just put a play together in Detroit recently. Um, Joel Fluent Green is another poet writer from Detroit whose work I love. Uh, Aurora Harris, like just so many phenomenal writers. Um, another one and the last one that these are just the people that I came up with um, uh, is a man named Kari Kamani Turner who now runs the Coleman Young Foundation, but he is a Detroit. Uh, poet, writer, essayist, journalist, who also had a, used took his poetry and created like a poetry funk band um, cool. that used to perform around Detroit called Black Bottom Collective. So anyway, so that those are some of my old school favorites. But I have a there's a lot I could never. I mean, I'll be. I'm going to get in trouble for just naming them and not naming a whole bunch of other people. But, but there's a whole bunch of other people, and I'm sort of naming, like, the stars. Yeah. Right, right Well, that's now. great. And, yeah. um, Dominique, thank you so, so much for your time and your uh, ideas. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, and have a good one. It was great talking to you as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.